Hello and welcome to the spring issue of National Trust magazine. I'm Sally Palmer, editor of the magazine, and I'll be taking you through some of the highlights, including news, features and events to enjoy this season. Spring's around the corner and this issue is bursting with ideas to help you make the most of your membership. We've got events to attend and articles from across the Trust to keep you up to date with all the work you're supporting. Thank you. Find out how we've been starting conversations about nature, working with people and other conservation charities to help protect it for future generations. And it's blossom season again, with beautiful blooms to lift the heart. Hear about some of the blossoming trees in Trust Care, which have intriguing histories, such as Isaac Newton's apple tree at Woolsthorpe Manor in Lincolnshire. Find out more about some of the stories of books in the Trust's collections and discover the new children's country house at Sudbury in Derbyshire. Finally, we're trialling three digital editions of your magazine this year, starting with this issue. We'd love to hear what you think of it. Here's Olivia Vinnell, Akia Henry and Glenn McCready to tell you about what's been happening around the Trust. The Savannah of North Devon. The Trust is transforming a 70-mile stretch of coastline between Torridge and West Exmoor into a haven for wildlife by planting pockets of wildflower grassland. Trust rangers sowed the first 86 hectares of wildflower grassland last autumn to attract wildlife, including voles, kestrels, bats, bees and butterflies. The grassland will also provide nature-rich places for people to enjoy. All the areas sown recently are near public rights-of-way, allowing easy access. Project coordinator Joshua Day says, Flower-rich grasslands are very rare, with 97% being lost over the last century, but lowland grassland creation is an effective and relatively quick way to improve habitats for wildlife and boost biodiversity. Once fully established, the first grasslands will become donor seed sites for the rest of the project, which will be completed by 2030. The Trust team has worked closely with the North Devon Area of Outstanding Natural Beauty on the project, and they've provided us with funds for equipment, training and community involvement through the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Memories of Her Majesty on the 19th of September, 2022, visitors from around the country lined the meadows of Runnymede in Surrey to witness the final journey of Her Majesty, the Queen, to Windsor Castle. The National Trust was deeply saddened by the news of Her Majesty's death, and we were honoured to have welcomed her to a number of places in Trust care during her 70-year reign. For the Trust team at Runnymede, which Her Majesty had visited several times, it was a particularly momentous and poignant occasion. Some 50,000 people were on site during the day. Dedicated staff and volunteers from Runnymede and beyond worked hard to ensure everything ran smoothly for the many people who came to pay their respects. Elsewhere around the country, the Trust laid out condolence books for visitors to sign, as well as a virtual book for those who couldn't visit in person. People's Plan for Nature Last autumn, the National Trust, RSPB and WWF UK launched a joint initiative to bring people together to come up with a plan to protect nature for future generations. 
Working with a group of 100 people from across the UK, the People's Plan for Nature will advise government, NGOs, businesses and communities what they can and must do to tackle the nature crisis. You can hear more in our feature in track 5. Happy 100th birthday, Glenys. Glenys, the prized steamroller in the Galea Jones collection at Hranacheron Keredigion, is 100 years old this year. The Galea Jones collection is a treasure trove of more than 2,000 pieces of agricultural and domestic machinery, collected by Sadler Galea Jones and his wife, Meyer. It marks an era when farming in Wales was rapidly changing and tells the story of rural life in Keredigion. Glenys was Galea's steamroller and is now one of the collection's highlights. You can visit and wish Glenys a happy birthday on Wednesdays and Fridays between March and October. Going digital. Many of you have told us that you'd like the option of reading your copy of National Trust magazine digitally. During 2023, we're trialling some different digital versions alongside your printed magazines. We'd love your feedback. So once you've read each digital version, please fill in the survey and let us know what you think. You can find it at bit.ly forward slash NT Digital Mag Spring 2023. Love Me Do. To celebrate the 60th anniversary of the Beatles hit Love Me Do, we offered members the chance to win a private tour of the Beatles' childhood homes in Liverpool. Mike McCartney, photographer, singer and Paul's brother, gave Trust members Joyce and John Ormston from Northumberland a private tour of his and Paul's childhood home, 24th in Road, before they tucked into a cream tea together. Being able to show Joyce and John around my family's little house, which is very much like the homes they grew up in in Newcastle, was such a joy, says Mike. You can enter exclusive competitions like this by signing up to our fortnightly member emails. Phone 0344 8001895 or email inquiries at nationaltrust.org.uk. And those were some of the highlights from the spring news. Our next feature is from the Director General. Your chance to hear from Hilary McGrady. Last year marked the 150th birthday of Rafe Vaughan Williams, one of the 20th century's most iconic composers. His The Lark Ascending is one of the UK's most loved pieces of classical music. It was one of my choices for the BBC Radio 4's Desert Island Dis in 2020. Vaughan Williams spent his youth at Leith Hill Place, now in the Trust's care. While the house is relatively modest, it sits with views over the Surrey Hills, and you can explore woodland, heathland, and farmland through country trails. As you walk, it's tempting to imagine that some of the love of landscape and nature that comes through his work was born out of that rural idyll. Indeed, so many examples of creativity and invention have been inspired by nature across our island's history, from Sir Isaac Newton and Wordsworth to Betjeman. Fast forward 151 years, and the bird song that was said to have inspired Vaughan Williams may be far quieter today. We know that our natural world is under threat. We've experienced extreme and severe weather events in recent years. Many of these have their roots in the effects of climate change. In 2022 alone, 
trust rangers had to deal with the unprecedented extreme heatwave, as well as the impacts of Storm Arwen. Our teams have also had the horrible task of responding to avian flu. The long-term picture reveals stark trends. The UK is one of the world's most nature-depleted countries. Large areas of natural habitats have been destroyed or seriously degraded, including almost all of the fens and species-rich grasslands, and more than two-thirds of our lowland heaths, ancient woodlands and salt marshes. These losses have had a devastating impact, not just on our precious wildlife, but also on our own quality of life. We may not all be inspired to write great poems or symphonies, but time spent in nature helps us all. I want everyone, everywhere, to be able to enjoy the wonders of nature, to be able to get outdoors and roam our landscapes. As a conservation charity facing these threats, our role is clear. Our charitable purpose entrusts us with promoting the preservation of lands for the natural aspect, features and animal and plant life. The good news is that we know that change is already happening. Trust rangers, farmers and commoners are all engaged in helping to reverse nature's decline, from new habitat creation and tree planting to projects to help endangered species such as the red squirrel or the European crayfish. We've seen some brilliant successes thanks to a landscape-scale project working with dozens of conservation organisations and farmers, one of Britain's rarest butterflies, the Duke of Burgundy, has bounced back at Bradenham in Buckinghamshire, where numbers have doubled over seven years. At the Honeycutt Estate in Somerset, we reintroduced beavers, which have settled in and had two kits. The watery habitats the beavers are creating have helped boost other species, such as kingfishers, grass snakes, bats and amphibians. It can feel like a luxury to talk about saving wildlife when times are challenging. It is, however, exactly at these times that we need nature most, just as much as it needs us. And by helping nature, we can also help people. For example, our work to re-meander rivers not only creates better habitats for nature, but also slows the flow of water, reducing flood risks for downstream communities. In May, the Trust will join organisations to celebrate His Majesty the King's coronation. Marking the start of a new era, it is a chance to think ahead to the future, especially for our environment. His Majesty's environmental passion is well known, reflected in his presidency of the National Trust and other conservation organisations. I am optimistic that we will continue to see progress made as we come together to help restore nature. We'll leave a legacy of birdsong and beauty to inspire future poets, composers and artists. And that was Hilary McGrady, the Trust's Director-General. The 127th AGM of the National Trust was held at the Bath Assembly Rooms last November. Member Anthony Lambert reported on the day, and his words are read by Glenn McCready. This was the Trust's first hybrid AGM, meaning those watching online could vote online as well. It was held at the elegant Georgian Assembly Rooms in Bath, which have recently come back into Trust care and hosted by television presenter Charlotte Smith. It was the first AGM of the new chair, René Oliveri, who welcomed those present in the ballroom and virtually. 
René said a few words about his background in the heritage, cultural, and environmental sectors. He emphasized the value and range of the Trust's work, from the well-being gained from time in gardens and green spaces to the joy in the beauty of our houses, to strengthening communities through the Trust's participation in festivals and how we're helping save skills through apprenticeships. Director General Hilary McGrady also welcomed members. She celebrated the National Trust's return to growth in support and conservation work after two difficult years. She gave examples of how the Trust was fulfilling its mission to look after and promote nature, beauty and history, including at Castlefield Viaduct in Manchester, where it was being delivered in a new way through community engagement and partnership. Hillary expanded on the three pillars of that mission in the 21st century. The act of preservation, how the nation benefits from what we do, and how we promote our cause. Among the many subjects touched upon by Hillary were the Trust's plans for the conservation of Clandon Park in Surrey, the Trust's first green corridor in Bath, new ideas to serve everyone such as the Children's Country House at Sudbury in Derbyshire and its work in urban areas. Following on from last year's AGM, she also talked about the ways the Trust is addressing overcrowding. The extraordinary variety of the Trust's work was brought out by Charlotte Smith when she held a panel discussion with five staff about subjects ranging from visitor expectations and farming to the inspiration of Birmingham's number 11 bus route in creating a ring of urban spring blossom. As always, questions to the executive team were diverse and included such topics as how to involve children in decision-making, helping young farmers with reasonable rents, carbon offsetting from car travel to trust places, and whether a park-and-ride at Studland in Dorset would help with parking difficulties there. When asked whether hedgerows should feature in the Trust's tree-planting ambitions, the team were able to reply that they already do. In response to a query about using local produce and less plastic in cafes, the Trust explained that staff shortages had compelled simplification. After lunch, the senior member of the Council, Sarah Green, reviewed the past year's work of the Council. It has continued to support the organisation in its recovery from lockdowns, as well as considering how best to contribute to the upcoming review of the Trust's strategy. The first of six members' resolutions questioned Trust participation in Pride events. We heard that Pride was one out of 4,000 community events which the Trust attends as part of its mission to make everyone feel welcome. A life member movingly described how a similar event had made him and his husband feel the Trust was now for them and encouraged them to join. The resolution was not carried. There was a resolution opposing rewilding and in favour of agriculture to help food security. The Trust countered that it works at the nexus of food, nature and climate, balancing production with carbon storage and improvements for nature. The resolution was not carried. A resolution proposed creating an ombudsman to hold the Trust to account when dealing with complaints. The Trust explained it has a robust, multi-level structure for complaints and an ombudsman would duplicate that and cause unnecessary expense. The resolution was not carried. Arguments over the resolution calling on the Trust to change its bank hinged upon whether withdrawal from Barclays or the Trust's engagement through the Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change 
was the more likely to work towards achieving net zero. The resolution was not carried. The resolution calling on the Trust to reconsider its support for the creation of a dual carriageway on the A303 near Stonehenge in Wiltshire argued that the scheme, despite revisions, remains severely damaging to the World Heritage Site archaeology. UNESCO recognises that the scheme, one of 50 options examined, has been improved, though more work is needed at the western end. The motion was not carried. Abolishing the chair's discretionary proxy vote was seen by the proposers as a way to end division and bring rules for resolutions in line with those for council elections. The response was that the use of discretionary proxy votes is common across many organisations. The resolution was not carried. After tea, Charlotte Smith talked to staff member Hugh Davis, who had toured 575 trust properties in a camper van with his wife and children. He cycled 5,017 miles to assess how welcoming trust places are to cyclists and to make recommendations for improvements. General Counsel and Secretary Jan Lassik read out the election results before René recalled the themes of the day and thanked everyone who had organised and participated in the AGM. The meeting closed to a film of singer and songwriter Serena Itu performing a song of her own composition at Paul McCartney's childhood home, 20 Forthlin Road in Liverpool. Elected to the council, Harris Bakari, OBE, elected. Anne Casement, re-elected. Jane Dean, re-elected. Sally Hunt, elected. Duncan Mackay, re-elected. Paul Roberts, re-elected. And Will Wilkin, elected. If you'd like to review a recording of the event, go to nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash AGM. The Council plays a key role in looking after nature, beauty and history for future generations. Applications for the 2023 elections to the Council will open in late February. If you'd like us to remind you when the application process is opened, please email us at governance at nationaltrust.org.uk. What would you miss most about nature if it were gone? Our rangers and gardeners are out every day, noticing small patterns that might lead to bigger issues. With other conservation charities and the public, we're bringing people together to come up with a plan to protect nature for future generations. Alan Power, gardener, arborist, and most recently South West Gardens consultant, is lost in his memories of the place where he spent most of his working life, the place he calls his anchor, Stourhead in Wiltshire. You could take me to the garden at Stourhead today with a blindfold on, and I'd recognize the scent, he says. I'd recognize the sound of the trees, the way the wind bellows across the forestry plantations. They're my synapses, you know? It's in my blood. It's like a member of my family. At the other end of the country, Gwen Potter leads a team of rangers on the Northumberland coast, Together, they look after six coastal sites, two inland sites, and the remote and beautiful Farne Islands, with their colonies of seabirds and marine mammals. It never stops being exciting, she says. When you see the first seal of the year, when you realise the Arctic terns have arrived back, you feel that sense of anticipation of what's going to be next, and then you actually see it. 
You hear the first little turn calling, and it instantly makes you think of the other times when you've seen little turns successfully breeding on the site that you've cared for. It's the best feeling. Across the National Trust, gardeners like Alan, rangers like Gwen, staff and volunteers are out in all seasons and all weathers, noticing the small changes happening in nature on the land in their care. Is the first primrose later than last year? Have the swallows started nesting early? And, most important of all, what sort of a bigger picture might the changes suggest? For 16 years, the Trust has released an annual weather and wildlife review between Christmas and New Year to highlight changes like these. The patterns range from big weather events to small changes in natural behaviour. In late 2021, for instance, Storm Arwind felled more than 50 historic trees at Bodnant Garden in Comwy. Last summer, there were wildfires at beauty spots including Studland Bay in Dorset and Baggy Point in Devon. Record-breaking temperatures caused prolonged periods of hot, dry weather over the summer months, and many areas experienced drought conditions. Trees across the country came under stress from lack of water, with some losing their leaves early. Some fruited early too, leaving less food for wildlife in the colder months. On the positive side, breeding waders at Orford Ness in Suffolk had a bumper year, with surveys by the ranger team and volunteers between April and July recording 51 pairs of at-risk redshanks, the highest number of breeding pairs since recording began in 2005. They also recorded their second-highest number of breeding pairs of lapwings and avocets. Our ranger communities are out and about, day in, day out, in their hundreds, says Outdoor and Natural Resources Director Patrick Begg, Add in the volunteers and we have thousands of people noticing what's happening and making their own records. They're personal and specific, not done against any particularly scientifically rigorous baseline, but they're still authentic and real. When you bring them together, as the weather and wildlife reviews do, the patterns woven across the different anecdotes start to surface the kind of trends that are really important. Trends can lead on to more rigorous and long-term studies, The Trust contributes to the State of Nature report, which is published every five years and uses wildlife data from a group of 50 conservation organisations. We collect data on a whole range of species, habitats and sites across the land in Trust care, including but not limited to birds, butterflies, bats and plants, explains Ben McCarthy, Head of Nature Conservation and Restoration. He says, The last State of Nature report came out in 2019. At the moment, We're working on our contribution for the 2024 report. The human drive to protect nature starts with noticing it and caring about it, and that in turn begins when we have access to it. Those daily exercise periods during the lockdowns of the past few years, when we were obliged to remain close to home, meant many of us became more familiar than ever before with our local green spaces. It's already well documented what a difference that made to people's mental and physical well-being, hearing familiar birdsong or seeing the same plant each day as it went through its life stages. But all the signs point to things getting tougher for our native wildlife. Patrick is 54 years old, and he says that during his lifetime, house sparrows have declined by 60%. That's really powerful to know because sparrows are commonplace and touch many people's lives, he says. It creates the conversation that's needed and, we hope, the energy for people to raise their voices and for government, politicians, local leaders and others to take notice and do something about it. 
Last autumn, three major conservation charities, the National Trust, RSPB and WWF UK, launched a joint initiative to try to channel that energy and those conversations into something practical and meaningful that would make a difference. It's called the People's Plan for Nature. First, anyone who wanted to was invited to start a conversation about nature and suggest ideas for better ways to look after it, both in person and via a website. Thousands of people got involved, talking together about what they loved about nature and what they'd miss if it weren't there, how they hoped it would be thriving by 2050 and what that might look like, and sharing examples of exciting ways they'd already witnessed communities looking after their local nature. The next step was to form the People's Assembly for Nature, a representative group of a 100 people from a range of backgrounds, ages, opinions and locations across the UK have been brought together to join specially moderated panel discussions. The moderators have drawn their discussion themes from those earlier online conversations and invited specialists to share expertise, not just about climate change and nature, but also areas including farming, food and local and national government. Between November 2022 and February 2023, the Assembly has been working to develop a set of recommendations for a People's Plan for Nature document to help protect and restore nature in the UK. That plan will set out how the government, businesses, NGOs and communities can take action to tackle the nature crisis, and the National Trust, RSPB and WWF UK will work with those bodies to help drive the necessary changes. When it's published later this spring, the People's Plan for Nature's website says it will be too big for anyone to ignore. The People's Plan for Nature is vitally important, says Patrick. In order for the people who have power and influence to really take notice and take action, we need civic society, the wider public, to understand the position nature is in and to call for change. Becky Spate is CEO of the RSPB which works to protect habitats, save species, and end the nature and climate emergency. She hopes the People's Plan for Nature will get people talking. We want this to be the biggest ever conversation on the future of nature, she says. We want people to come together from all walks of life, creating a shared vision and developing a set of recommendations for different actors in society to protect, restore, and save nature. We then want to see those recommendations put into action and nature seen as a top priority for the UK. This concerns all of us. The WWF supports conservation work in nearly 100 countries to tackle the most pressing issues where nature, people and climate come together. WWF UK's Director for Science, Mark Wright, says it's not too late to save nature, but the window of time we have to work with is closing. We know that if we are to avert the worst of climate impacts, we need to halve our emissions of greenhouse gases by 2030 and reach net zero by 2050, he says. Without this, we will face devastating consequences, and we are not on track to reach these targets. But in recent years, we have seen people come together to fight for nature in a way we've never seen before. So I have a growing optimism that we can drive the changes we need to revive our world. All three agree that no one person or organisation can save nature by themselves. The issues we are now facing are simply too big to do this alone, says Becky. We will only make lasting change if we work together. Partnerships like this are not just important, they are vital, 
says Mark. The scale of the threats we face, the urgency with which we need to act, and the social, economic and political issues we have to address mean it is impossible for any one group to succeed. But collectively, as individuals, businesses and political leaders, we can make the changes needed to secure a future that is good for people, nature and climate. Out on the Northumberland coast, Gwen and the ranger team saw that the seabirds on the farms in particular struggled last year because of the effects of avian flu. On the plus side, the little terns had a good breeding season and the rangers have been considering why. I think it's partly luck, the weather was better after four or five years of particularly bad storms, and partly the interventions we put in place over the winter to help, she says. We laid down some branches in the area where the birds nest, and when it was really windy and stormy, those branches trapped the sand and helped raise the nests above the high tides. They also observed that seal pups were born later in November than usual in the inner group of the islands. It's weird how late that pupping has been. Maybe it's something to do with the warmer weather. Something to keep an eye on. Last autumn, members of the public were asked three questions about nature. Their replies have helped inform the discussions around the people's plan for nature. The first thing they were asked was, what do you love about nature in the UK? What would you miss if it disappeared? Walks without birdsong? Spring without wildflower meadows? Cliffs without seabirds? Woodland without ash trees? Ponds without insects? Flowers without butterflies and bees? Rivers without fish. We must think, act and fight for the natural world before we destroy it. And without it, destroy ourselves. I would miss seeing squirrels on my walks. I would miss the way spiderwebs catch the morning dew. I'd miss hearing stories of animals in unlikely places, like whales in the Thames. I love the way that the green nature of England's land makes me feel home. The forests and the fields are alluring and magical. Without the moors, we wouldn't have classics like Wuthering Heights. Imagine it's 2050 and nature in the UK is thriving. What is different from now? I'd like to see more hedgehogs, with tunnels under the roads for them to get around. There would be more wildflowers for bees and butterflies, many more trees and fewer concrete gardens. Our countryside and farmland is full of birdsong and all endangered species have made a comeback, such as turtle doves. Everyone has easy access to wild places to enjoy wildlife. Environmental protections are stronger. What exciting examples have you seen of people working together to restore and protect nature? Our village primary school is using a small woodland as a classroom and we are currently working to create a community wildlife hub in a converted bus shelter. We have a community group of litter pickers who help to reduce the threat of litter to wildlife. A local community group in partnership with the local authority has created tiny forests and regeneration projects of green spaces. Find out more about the People's Plan for Nature at peoplesplanfornature.org. And if you'd like to donate to our Everyone Needs Nature appeal, please visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash everyone dash needs dash nature dash appeal. Our next feature is Bring on the Blossom, written by Deputy Editor Rhea Borden.
Winter will soon be over and blossoming trees will start to spring into colour. Gnarled and new orchards alike burst into bloom. City streets fizz with cherry flowers and gardens unfurl glorious displays. Wherever you are this spring, get out and catch the best show of the season. If you want to see a famous blossom tree, visit Woolsthorpe Manor in Lincolnshire. We can't guarantee you the scientific epiphany enjoyed by Isaac Newton when he lived here, but we can promise a gorgeous springtime blossom display from his apple tree. Newton's tree is a traditional Flower of Kent variety. In autumn, it bears green cooking apples with a red flush, and in the spring, it's covered with pretty white flowers. The tree first put down roots at Woolsthorpe around 400 years ago, where it witnessed a 22-year-old Isaac, home from university at Cambridge, experimenting with universal concepts. He sat here under its boughs and pondered why everything always falls downwards, not just apples, but stars, planets, and other what he called heavenly bodies, which are kept in orbit. His conclusion that something constant must be pulling them led to his theory of gravity. A storm blew Newton's tree down in 1816, which might have been the end of its story, but drawings from the time and later genetic tests showed that the tree didn't die. Instead, it became a phoenix tree, from the mythical bird that rises from the ashes. What was once a side branch now grows upwards from the remains of the fallen tree. This is the tree you can see at Woolsthorpe today. Apple pips from Newton's tree were blasted up to the International Space Station as part of Tim Peake's Principia mission in 2015. They spent six months floating in microgravity and then landed back on Earth in 2016 to be nurtured into young trees at Kew. The space saplings were planted in places where the Newtons of the future might continue to find inspiration, such as the Eden Project in Cornwall, Jodrell Bank Discovery Center in Cheshire, the UN Office for Outer Space Affairs in Vienna, and one close to the tree that started it all, at Woolsthorpe Manor. Make a day of it. If you return to Woolsthorpe Manor in autumn, you might be able to sample the tree's bounty by picking up a bag of windfall apples from the shop. While you're here, you might like to buy a keyring or pen, handmade from some of the pruned apple wood. If you want to see seasonal showstoppers from around the world, visit Bodnant Garden in Conwy, Bidolf Grange Garden in Staffordshire and Glendurgan Garden in Cornwall. The spring flowers at Bodnant Garden in Conwy are rather exotic. The garden's lush banks in the foothills of Snowdonia are full of plants collected from far afield lands and brought back to North Wales by plant collectors. The collection includes some examples of early magnolias introduced to the UK. Originating from China, they bloom in shades of fresh cream and bubblegum pink between March and June. They've barely finished before the rhododendrons follow, in hot reds, pinks and purples. The gardeners here say there's a rhododendron shrub in flower every month of the year. Late spring brings the ivory handkerchief tree, flame-coloured Chilean firebush, Himalayan blue poppies and cerise Himalayan primulas. You can take another world tour of flowers and blossoming trees at Bidolf Grange in Staffordshire. Start your journey in Italy with bright tulips on the Italianate terraces, then travel to the Egyptian garden with its topiary obelisks and sphinxes before reaching China 
ablaze with a cherry orchard garden and Chilean fire bushes. End your trip with a four-arc rainbow of Himalayan rhododendrons, which flower in the Lime Avenue. Further south, visit the show-stopping display at Glendurgan Garden in Cornwall. Spring arrives early here thanks to the mild microclimate. Wild daffodils, columbines and primroses flourish in the grass and set the stage for rhododendrons, magnolias and camellias. The Fox family, who created Glendurgan in the 1820s, called it heaven on earth. Make a day of it. Get lost in blossom, literally, at Glendurgan Garden. See if you can find your way through the maze, which recently reopened after a four-year conservation project. Spring is the perfect time to take on the challenge. If you want to see blossoming traditional orchards, visit Ardress House in County Armagh and Brockhampton in Herefordshire. Orchards are places where the shared histories of people and nature are woven together. It's likely the Romans were the first society to cultivate them in the UK, and they've been a feature of our farming heritage ever since, which is why there is so much tradition and folklore entangled in them. Wassailing, an ancient Twelfth Night tradition, often took place in cider-producing regions, when farmers and their families would sing to the trees in the hope of a good harvest and pour cider around their roots. Pockets of the country have become especially well-known for their orchards. County Armagh still produces its world-famous Armagh Bramley apples. The farmers put the taste down to the growing conditions, where orchards are cooled by the sea breeze and supported by a fertile soil with a pure and abundant water supply. They say this results in a firmer, more dense fruit. Late spring here is spectacular, as pink blossom blankets the rows of apple trees each May. One of the best places to see them in bloom is at Ardress House in Annamore. This 17th century house has a circular walk, known as the Ladies' Mile, around the grounds with great swathes of blossom and wildflowers. The largest orchard in trust care is in Herefordshire, one of the UK's most renowned cider counties. Nine hectares of fruit trees form part of the traditionally farmed estate of Brockhampton, which dates back to the 14th century. The orchards there have recently had a revival, thanks to generous support from players of People's Postcode Lottery, Arts Council England and Sport England. The local community helped to replant three lost orchards with over 700 maple, hazel, elder, blackthorn, apple, damson, pear, plum and quince trees, all chosen to benefit nature. There is also a new 1.8-mile accessible path that winds around the estate, which will be lovely this spring when the orchards are in bloom. Make a day of it. Complete your orchard visit by sampling some wares. Try trust tenant farmer Greg McNeese's MacIver Cider, which fuses the Armagh Bramley apple with traditional cider apples. If you're visiting Brockhampton, we recommend the Gundog Gin, made from their damsons and sold in the granary shop. If you want to see Urban Blossom, visit Birmingham, Swindon, Plymouth and East London. Birmingham was once described as a town ringed by blossom, thanks to the lush orchards and gardens encircling it. Today there are still signs of the city's botanical past for those who look. Cherry Street, at the heart of Birmingham's city centre, is named after the three cherry orchards it once crossed in the 18th century. The orchards belonged 
to the Priory of St. Thomas of Canterbury and would have provided fruit for the monastery. To the south of the city, chocolate manufacturer George Cadbury also made Birmingham bloom. Each of the homes he built for his factory workers in his garden village of Bourneville in the 19th century had a good-sized garden with at least six fruit trees to help keep his employees healthy in body and mind. Today, thanks to players of People's Postcode Lottery, the Trust is bringing Blossom back to Birmingham, since 157 of its 186 orchards have been lost to urban growth since 1900, the equivalent of nine of its bullring shopping centres. We are working with dozens of partners to plant 600 blossom trees in neighbourhoods across the city to create a symbolic ring of blossom to celebrate its botanical history. If you're closer to Swindon, wander through GWR Park, where we've partnered with Historic England, South Swindon Parish Council and Swindon Borough Council to plant a new blossom circle on the footprint of the former bandstand. In Devon, head to Devil's Point in Plymouth for your blossom fix. The blossom circle here includes hardy blackthorns and native wildflowers, both of which are great for pollinators. It's been planted thanks to funding from People's Postcode Lottery in partnership with Plymouth City Council. Londoners might like to take a turn around Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park in East London. Opened in May 2021, it's home to 33 blossom trees, one for each London borough, planted in circles by the Trust in partnership with the Mayor of London, Rosetta Arts, the Edible Bus Stop and Davies White Landscape Architects. Make a day of it. Many of us love to take a phone snap of blossom against a spring sky. Upload your photos to social media with hashtag BlossomWatch to share the joy. To help support the Trust's aim of planting and establishing 20 million trees by 2030, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash plant a tree. Our next feature is A Journey Through Books, written by assistant editor Karen Gregory. Most of the past is lost to us forever, but what's left often survives through the written word. 100 books from the libraries of the National Trust tells the stories of some of the books and manuscripts in Trust Care. Words are one of the biggest loves of my life. I was that child who would read obsessively, including the back of the serial books if nothing else was available. As an adult, I am still an avid reader, as well as an author, associate lecturer in creative writing, and one of the assistant editors for National Trust magazine. I was therefore thrilled to be asked to pick out just a few of the very special books in the Trust Care from the new 100 books from the libraries of the National Trust, and somewhat daunted as to how on earth to make my choice from the array it contains. My sympathies lie with the team of curators who faced the same problem multiplied 4,000-fold when they had to whittle down their selection of 100 from the 400,000 books and manuscripts in the Trust's collections. Those that made the final 100 are drawn from across 13 centuries. Tim Pye, National Curator, Libraries, who co-authored the book, says, Selecting just 100 books from a collection as vast as the Trust's was challenging and can never be comprehensive. 
Some are rare treasures, others are more minor works, but all have interesting stories. These are the books that survived the centuries. They tell tales of empire and power, art and music, riches and fame, but also of family, the poor, marginalised and the voiceless. Satyr sits alongside religion, musical scores next to ABC primers for children. I love how these books demonstrate how all our histories, however incomplete, are intertwined. There's something of relevance to everyone, whatever your interests. I hope you enjoy finding out about some of these wonderful books as much as I did when I picked out the selection that follows and that they inspire you to visit or look online and discover something more. Book of Hours, Powys Castle in Powys Religious texts are prominent within the Trust's collections. Some of the most lavishly decorated and personal of these are Books of Hours, which began to be produced in the 13th century. They helped lay people to participate in daily cycles of prayers practised by monks and nuns at different times or hours of the day. Girls might have been given these books by their mothers. The Powys Book of Hours was produced for Eleanor Percy, circa 1474 to 1530, when she married the third Duke of Buckingham and later brought to Powys by a second Eleanor Percy, circa 1582 to 1650. There is a portrait on display at Powys of the later Lady Eleanor Percy at age 13, around the time of her marriage to the first Baron Powys. I found it moving to think of a mother potentially giving something beautiful and personal to her daughter, to stay with her throughout her days. The prayers would have started at sunrise and ended at sunset, so the Book of Hours would have been a constant companion and a comfort for such young brides. The interesting narrative of the life of Ulada Equiano, or Gustavus Vassa, the African, written by himself, Felbrig Hall in Norfolk. Ulada Equiano was an extraordinary man. A former slave, he went on to become a leading campaigner to abolish the transatlantic slave trade. His autobiography is considered one of the foundation stones of black literature. In it, he tells how he was kidnapped, aged around 11, possibly from what is now Nigeria, sold into slavery, and shipped to Barbados and the US. After he was sold to a trader, he was able to work and save enough money to buy his freedom in 1766. He co-founded the Sons of Africa, a black political campaigning organization, in 1786, and published his autobiography three years later. Equiano's unique first-person insight into the slave trade was a bestseller, running into nine editions during his lifetime. It became a hugely influential part of the anti-slavery movement. I found it an inspirational testament to his courage and strength of spirit and the immense power of words to change the course of history. Harmonia Macrocosmica, or Star Atlas, by Andreas Solarius. Blickling Hall in Norfolk. Humans have looked to the heavens for thousands of years for navigation and inspiration. The Harmonia is perhaps the most beautiful star atlas ever produced. Written by Andreas Solarius during the 17th century Golden Age of Dutch cartography, it's a compilation of the work of some great cosmographers, 
from Ptolemy in AD 150 to 16th century Nicholas Copernicus. Controversy raged for centuries over issues such as whether the sun orbited the earth, and the harmonia was criticized for inaccuracy. But it was not intended to be conclusive. Instead, it was meant to be a general history of astronomy for non-scientists. Its stunning hand-colored plates are still breathtaking in their beauty today. People's appetite for exploring the beauty and mysteries of the cosmos hasn't dimmed over the centuries. Like many others, I've been excited and awed by the incredible images coming to us from the James Webb Space Telescope. If you feel inspired to explore the night sky, several trust places are designated as dark sky discovery sites, which means they're excellent spots for stargazing. The mirror, or a looking glass for young people of both sexes, consisting of a choice collection of fairy tales by Mother Goose, Cherryburn in Northumberland. The history of children's literature in the UK goes back further than you might think. According to the British Library, it was thriving by the end of the 18th century, with around 50 children's books being published each year. They tended to be pretty stuffy by today's standards, with strong moralistic themes, but they also had illustrations and were clearly designed to engage and entertain. The Mirror is no exception. It's a collection of fairy tales containing woodcuts from Northumbrian wood engraver Thomas Buick, 1753-1828, designed to make children wise, good and happy. Hopefully they enjoyed looking at the woodcuts too. I love the fact that early children's books are rare now because they were often read until they fell apart. This book is the only known surviving copy and one of its first owners, a young girl called Mary, practiced writing her name in the front several times. Centuries later, children were still being delighted by other authors with trust connections, including Beatrix Potter, Rudyard Kipling and Agatha Christie. Visit Hilltop in Cumbria, Batemans in East Sussex and Greenway in Devon to find out more about them. And also Cherryburn, Thomas Buick's Northumbrian birthplace, Check the Trust website first, as these are smaller properties and you might need to book. And from April, you can buy 100 books from the libraries of the National Trust for £10 at nationaltrustbooks.co.uk. Our next feature is the Children's Country House. Go behind the scenes at Sudbury Hall in Derbyshire where the young and young at heart alike can enjoy hands-on history in a thoroughly new way. The feature is written by Charlotte Hodgman and read by Akia Henry. It's ten o'clock on a Monday morning, and a group of children and their families have gathered outside the imposing north front of Sudbury Hall in Derbyshire as we wait for the doors of the Grade 1 listed late 17th century country house to open, the anticipation is palpable. For this is to be no ordinary visit, and these are no ordinary visitors. What lies beyond these doors has been designed not only for children, but also by them. This is the children's country house, and some of those children are waiting with me today to see the results of their ideas for the very first time. I've travelled to Sudbury with my six-year-old son, Noah, who, like most young people, likes to get hands-on with his history. 
a potential recipe for disaster in the fragile world of precious artefacts. But is it possible to marry the sticky-fingered enthusiasm of children like Noah with centuries of history? Absolutely, says Jodie Lees, general manager at the Children's Country House and our guide for the day. Children make up around a fifth of our members. They're the heritage lovers and champions of the future. Sudbury has always been popular with families because of the Museum of Childhood, which has been in the hall's Victorian wing for almost 50 years. But not many of the families visiting the museum went on to see the hall itself. Now, with assistance from Arts Council England, the Children's Country House is bringing together these different strands of Sudbury's past and encouraging young people to have fun with history along the way. In 2020, Jodie and the team at Sudbury recruited 100 local young ambassadors aged up to 12 years for the Children's Country House project. The ambassadors, alongside local school children and community groups, joined virtual and in-person workshops to share their ideas with the Trust's curators and conservators and try out some of the new ideas. Even the artists who were involved in the project were selected by the children themselves. The explainer room was my idea, 11-year-old ambassador Lexi tells me proudly. I wanted there to be a room where children could ask questions, look at objects and start their journey through the hall. There's no time for further chat as the doors are swinging open to welcome us in. We pour through the stone-paved entrance passage and into the first of the 12 rooms on our tour, the Great Hall. Once used by the family for large formal dinners and dominated by a huge marble chimney piece, today it has become Lexi's explainer room and is known as the portal. Rushing inside, the children fling themselves onto a central oval-shaped seating area lying back to watch a kaleidoscopic video about the hall as it plays across the ceiling. Video over, we're starting our journey through the Hall of Wonder Blue Zone by climbing one of Sudbury's highlights, the Grand Staircase. The two exquisitely carved flights of stairs, believed to have been designed by George Fernan, 1636 to 1702, who inherited Sudbury at 25 and rebuilt the entire mansion in Jacobean style, have just been restored as part of a £70,000 project. I feel privileged to be among the first to ascend them in 40 years. Despite the obvious care that's gone into the building, I'm struck by how relaxed everyone is. There are information placards around the hall that make it clear what can be touched or handled and encourage the children to look, interact, play and make noise. Roped-off areas are rare. In the Great Stairhead Chamber a room that oozes wealth and status, we find object-spotting card games that prove a big hit. Before long, Noah and the ambassadors are competing to be the first to find some of its treasures. Next stop is the small bookcase-lined Talbot room. Dozens of beautifully folded paper objects, from aeroplanes to hot air balloons and boats, hang from the ceiling, reflecting the room's theme of adventure. Many of the children immediately drop to the floor to sail model ships across a specially commissioned map carpet or peer into small dioramas that have been inserted into some of the bookshelves. I'm curious about this room's connection to Sudbury's historic family. The fifth Lord Vernon, 1803 to 1866, 
travelled across Europe and collected many of the books you can see at Sudbury today, says Jodie. The family might have used this room to plan exciting expeditions and they often brought things home with them to study. As a book lover, the Talbot Room is one of my favourite spaces. But for the ambassadors, the highlight is clearly the long gallery. A 42-metre long space that was a place of entertainment and exercise for the Vernon family on wet days. I particularly love Jane Austen. So I'm pleased when Jodie explains the room was an interior location for Pemberley in the 1995 production of Pride and Prejudice. In both a historical and modern sense, this is a family space. And that's reflected in the many activities on offer. Certainly, the room has an immediate effect on these children. Within seconds, Noah has raided one of the new toy boxes, pulling out a selection of wooden geese on wheels and instigating a loud race down the length of the gallery. They're a nod to the equally loud flock of geese we can hear in the grounds outside. Several of the ambassador families have seated themselves at tables in the window alcoves, setting up games of dominoes, noughts and crosses and shut the box, a traditional dice game. As many parents and carers will know only too well, trying to limit screen time can often feel like a losing battle. So it's lovely to see cartoons temporarily forgotten as the ambassadors get stuck into historical games and activities that children would have enjoyed centuries ago. It's the sort of space where you can just run free and not have to worry about breaking something, like you would do in a normal museum, says 11-year-old Manur as she explores the gallery. My brother and I enjoy playing all the board games and dressing up, but it's also a place where children can learn more about the history of the hall in a fun way. I'm intrigued by a novel way of getting the children to take a closer look at the formal portraits of the historic family gazing down from the walls of the long gallery. There's a speech bubble hanging beneath each figure, imagining what the person might be saying to their neighbour in a way that reminds me of the animated portraits Harry Potter encounters at Hogwarts. Elsewhere, a group of children have gathered at the selfie booth, dressing up in costumes and setting up their pictures with props and backdrops. A peek round the back of the booth, where several of them are discussing whether the objects they had asked for during their workshops have been included in the stash of props, alongside their symbolism in art. Lambs, I am confidently told, were often associated with innocence, and the toys they are playing with also have a deeper meaning, chosen to reflect the plasterwork animals decorating the ceiling above, from grasshoppers and unicorns to boars and dragons. I took part in most of the online workshops during lockdown, says 11-year-old Max. My favourites were the pictures workshops, where we had to look at some of the paintings and talk about what we noticed about them. I suggested lots of things to play with, and there's definitely a lot of them here today. When the children finally tear themselves away from board games and selfies, we move on to the saloon, where modern songs play out in a Baroque style. A neon sign encourages us to dance like it's 1699. Needing no further invitation... Several children pull lace collars, cuffs, skirts and waistcoats from a wardrobe and take to the floor, twirling around beneath the glitter ball. In George Vernon's day, this room would have been the dining hall, a place of entertainment and dancing. I can't help but smile to see it being used for that purpose again by today's young visitors. In the drawing room, we learn about a National Trust research project 
to try and uncover the identity of the young enslaved boy shown in John Vanderbank's 1737 portrait of Anne Howard, Lady Young, which hangs above the fireplace. Lady Young's younger sister married the first Lord Vernon, and we know she remained close to the Vernon family even after her sister died. The child's silver collar indicates that he is an enslaved rather than salaried servant, but as yet nothing more is known of him. Nevertheless, his presence in the house is prompting new conversations, and the room is now used for children to draw self-portraits and think about their own identity. It's time to leave the Hall of Wonder and venture downstairs into the yellow zone of the world below to discover the work that goes into looking after Sudbury. In the kitchen, the large wooden table has been laid out with lumps of clay, rolling pins and shape cutters. Donning aprons, the children thump and roll their clay into a variety of shapes, just as kitchen staff must have done here centuries ago with dough and pastry. It's next to the Pantry of Destruction, which brings the importance of conservation to life with examples of some of the dangers facing trust places, from fire and flood to theft and household pests. Our last stop is the future room, dominated by a large model of Sudbury Hall. As the children start building their own creations out of Lego, I ask them whether the children's country house has lived up to their expectations. The answer is a resounding yes. I've loved seeing some of my ideas come to life here, says 10-year-old Poppy enthusiastically. In one of the workshops, we did some work with bunting, and I thought it would be fun if the bunting could be turned into a type of maze. And it's there now, in the garden. I'm going to go and see it, and also try and find the giant grasshopper that I designed. Seeing how engaged and excited the ambassadors, and Noah, have been to explore Sudbury Hall today, I head for home feeling happy that the children's country house is inspiring the next generation of hands-on history lovers. Charlotte Hodgman is a National Trust member and the editor of BBC History Revealed magazine. The children's country house is open at weekends and daily during the school holidays. Entry to the hall must be pre-booked. Go to nationaltrust.org.uk and search for Sudbury Hall. My membership and me. Annie Bird and her family love visiting Hanbury Hall and Croom in Worcestershire with their trained buddy dog, Dottie. We asked why she joined the Trust and how she and her family use their membership. My parents took me to Trust places as a child and later I became a member with my husband, Steve. Our lives changed when our children, Theo and Izzy, came along as we became parents of children with special needs but we still love to visit trust places such as Croom and Hanbury Hall with our buddy dog, Dottie. Lots of trust places are impressively accessible for children with additional needs, with plenty of accessible parking and good pathways. We visit Hanbury Hall a few times a month and meet there for picnics with my brother and his children, as well as Theo and Izzy's friends. The staff are always so lovely. We often need to bring a lot of equipment with us and it can be difficult for us to leave our house to arrive at a set time. On paper, Theo and Izzy's needs are quite extensive, but you tend to forget about that because they are both very chatty and determined to do what everyone else can. Dottie has really helped us all enjoy our days out. 
We got Dottie through guide dogs in March last year, and we soon forgot about what life had been like without her. Though it's Izzy who's registered blind, Dottie's been amazing for Theo and the rest of us too. When she's wearing her coat, she can go anywhere, so we can all get out. She's very calm and used to roads and noisy places. Theo struggles with transitions due to his autism, so when it's time to go, we say Dottie is tired and then he'll help her get back in the car. Before Dottie, leaving would cause a lot of trouble. When we take Dottie indoors, people will ask Izzy questions and she thrives on the attention. We love visiting Hanbury Hall. I remember Theo making a den there. He's always very wobbly when he walks and he was so excited to have the coordination to carry big sticks and prop them up. Both children love the play area. Izzy can crawl fast and there's a field she explores where she's in her happy place. I fundraise for a specialist off-road wheelchair, so we also take her over bumpy fields, which she finds hilarious. She loves to feel the sun and wind on her face. For her birthday, she said she wanted to spend the day at Hanbury. We've always come here, so I enjoy looking back and seeing how they're able to do more over the years. Initially, Theo couldn't cope with the walk from the car park to the main house, but now he runs. We're so grateful for our trust membership. We're thinking of trying some new trust places like Charlecat, now the children are older. It's just a question of being a bit brave. Visits with Dottie have made a huge difference to our lives. Find out more about visiting with a disability at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash access dash four dash everyone. Could your story inspire others about the different ways they can use their membership? Write to magazine at nationaltrust.org.uk. We store all correspondence securely for 24 months from date of receipt and then delete it. We promise not to share your details outside the Trust. Before we wrap up this edition, it's time to hear about some of the events going on at National Trust Places this spring. Please make sure to check individual property websites, the National Trust app, or call the property for the latest information before you visit. Try a guided tour with a twist as you go behind the scenes at Cork Abbey in Derbyshire. Along the way, you'll uncover obscure snippets of history and scandalous secrets as you delve into Cork's depths. Runs on Wednesdays and Saturdays from the 7th of January to the 25th of February. Booking is required at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash cork abbey. Featuring historic and contemporary items from the collection, Killerton's Thirsty for Fashion exhibition explores fashion, climate change and sustainability at Killerton in Devon from the 11th of February. From the 1st of March, two paintings by Flemish artists Peter Tillemans and Anthony van Dyck are newly on display at Scotney Castle in Kent. They show descendants of Roger Ashburnham, who built Scotney Castle in the 1370s. From the first snowdrops to buzzing bees, signs of spring will begin to appear over the coming weeks. Here are some seasonal showstoppers to look out for and where to find them. Visit Kingston Lacey in Dorset in mid-January and you'll soon find yourself surrounded by snowdrops. Kingston Lacey is home to more than 40 varieties, including the intriguingly named Ding Dong and Heffalump. 
Honeybees have been kept at Hewenden in Buckinghamshire for many years. The honey is still harvested, but the bees' main job these days is to help with pollination. Seeing bees after winter is a sure sign of spring. More than half of the world's bluebells can be found in the UK. At Blickling Estate in Norfolk, the bluebell display from April to May has become even more spectacular, thanks to woodland thinning and clearing of brambles over winter. There's plenty of fun for everyone with this spring's adventure-packed Easter trails. Become an intrepid explorer, follow the markers and complete ten activities to claim your chocolate or free-from egg. There are more than 190 trails to choose from across England, Wales and Northern Ireland. Find your nearest one at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Easter dash trails, £3 per trail. From the 24th of March to the 30th of April, make a beeline for the Easter Trail at Colton Fishacre in Devon, which is all about honeybees. Buzz around the garden to complete activities such as having a go at the famous waggle dance, then collect your chocolate reward. Castle Ward in County Down. From the 1st to the 17th of April, enjoy the spring awakening at Castle Ward this Easter. Follow the trail around the gardens and have a go at sensory nature activities along the way to claim your chocolate treat. While you're here, you can also visit the mansion house or borrow balance bikes to explore the estate. East Riddlesden Hall in West Yorkshire Whatever the weather's like this Easter, enjoy a trail at East Riddlesden Hall from the 1st to the 23rd of April. Keep an eye out for some mischievous bunnies who have hidden themselves around the house or make the most of the spring flowers by following the Easter trail around the gardens and claiming your chocolate prize. All these activities and more are listed at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash what's dash on. So do check to see what's going on in your area. Well, that's all from us this spring issue. I hope you've enjoyed it, and do let us know what you think of this audio edition. You can email us at magazine at nationaltrust.org.uk. The National Trust magazine Spring 2023 was presented by me, Sally Palmer. The readers in this edition were Akia Henry, Glenn McCready and Olivia Vinnell. It was produced for National Trust magazine by Sound Understanding, and all items are copyright. CDs of this audio edition are available to visually impaired members of the National Trust and are distributed by the RNIB. If you know of anyone who is eligible and would like to receive one, please call the RNIB on 01733 375 370. Or you can write, enclosing the membership number, to Sales and Operations, RNIB, Midgate House, Midgate, Peterborough, PE1. 1TN. This audio magazine is also available to download or stream as a podcast. For more information, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join us for the next audio issue of National Trust magazine.